the book is uh, The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. And co-authors on this, Kent Alexander, the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia at the time, back in 1996. Kevin Salwin, longtime reporter, editor of the Wall Street Journal, who headed up the paper's Southeastern edition uh, during the Olympics. And uh, uh, Kevin and Kent, uh, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Our pleasure. Yeah, it's great to be here. Kent, uh, first here, you met Richard Jewell only hours after the bombing, I guess. What was your impression of him? My impression at that point was he was a hero. I met him right outside the gates of the Centennial Park at the Inform building and shook his hand. He was standing with uh, the FBI special agent charge and the ATF special agent charge, and he was just a aw shucks kind of guy, and I just thank him for what he did. That night, Kent, just the scene of, of what you experienced as far as from your perspective, your job. Well, I was at home sleeping. I got a call, got dressed, headed down to the FBI, and then straight to the park. By that point, all the victims had been cleared out. Everybody had been cleared out except for Alice Hawthorne's body. And uh, the FBI was already setting up their uh, forward command post is called up in the inform building with wiring everything up for an investigation. And People were uh, looking in the park. They'd already checked it out with dogs for a second bomb, a secondary device. And uh, it looked like it was just a deserted city after a Holocaust. Uh, Kevin, uh, same for you. I mean, your job uh, with the Wall Street Journal at the time. Uh, what were your first immediate uh, moments and hours uh, after this happened? For What was that for, like for you? I had been in the park that day, but uh, I had small children. And so I was long gone and long in bed by... Uh, by the time the bomb went off, I learned about it in the morning uh, off the uh, off the radio, as it were. As far as your book goes, you get the two-track detailing of Richard Jewell and, and his, I guess, couple of days in the media blitz as, as he's, he's looked upon as a hero. You've got that compared to the other track, what, what was happening behind the scenes with the FBI's investigation, who knew what when, how Jewell was focused on. How surprising was it for the FBI to settle on Jewell as a prime suspect so quickly as far as how you read that from your perspective, your respective jobs? From my job as U.S. attorney, uh, for some of the folks at the FBI and GBI and ATF, uh, it was not surprising because sometimes the person who discovers the bomb is the guy. But there were two other major suspects before that. And what ended up happening is people took a look at it and then started thinking back to the Los Angeles game in 1984 where a police officer discovered a uh, quote-unquote bomb and ran off, ran away with it so it would get out of harm's way. It was in the uh, bus of a Turkish athlete at the airport, and it, he was hailed as a hero, but then it turns out he had done it just to call attention to himself and make himself appear to be a hero. So when Richard Jewell's name surfaced and other things surfaced about him, for a lot of people who were uh, in law enforcement, things began to click. I think from a media perspective, I think we were in the same place as the public, which was here was a guy who we all perceived as being a hero and what he had done and putting himself in harm's way and helping to create a perimeter that saved scores of, and scores of lives. It was just marvelous work. And then when all of a sudden you hear, well, wait a second, the FBI thinks this guy did it. That's pretty jarring. But we didn't have the same kind of original sources at the Wall Street Journal as Kathy Scruggs had at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Mm -hmm. And she was, candidly, she was ahead of us on the story. There had been whispers, as Kent mentioned, about Richard's name, but we didn't have anywhere near what Kathy had to go beyond those whispers, and we certainly didn't have enough to put it in the paper. Kevin, let me stay on that track with you real quick as far as you mentioned AJC's Kathy Scruggs 
and she gets that source at a bar, and, and she's trying to confirm that with somebody else, and then they eventually do go with that headline, the story. Richard Jewell, the fascinating character in this saga, but, but she's certainly another one in this whole saga, is she not, as far as uh, her, her doggedness to get a story, and then she gets this story, and then what transpires after that. It's certainly a fascinating character here as well. She is. Kathy Scruggs is, is almost right out of the 1930s newspaper wars. She's just a fun character. She was a fun character for us to write, that's for sure. But she's, mm-hmm. she's really a larger-than-life person. She loved police reporting. She loved working her sources. She loved going to homicide scenes, going to Manuel's Tavern to talk up the homicide cop. She was a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker. She kept a gun in her purse. She opened her blouse just a little bit too far, you know, that kind of thing. But that said, there was not a better police reporter in the city of Atlanta. And she worked super hard on this story and her work paid off. She absolutely had the story correct that the FBI had Richard Jewell as their lead suspect. What happened, of course, afterward is where things truly went off the rails. Kent is from an investigator's standpoint, from that end of things, the FBI and and how they approach this. Uh, certainly, uh, you guys talk about uh, uh, Don Johnson, the FBI agent who's, who goes up to Habersham County, talks to the Piedmont College police chief mm-hmm. and president there, and, and that, that's a key interview as, they, he's, as he brings that back, and it turns out that Quantico is already working on a profile of who they think this is, essentially indict Jewel, as you say, already that early in the process, and I mean, it's, it's pretty fast-moving. It was incredibly fast-moving, and everybody should bear in mind that the the goal wasn't to get Richard Jewell. The goal was to stop whoever the bomber was from striking again. There were 2 million people in, the, in Atlanta. That night, there were 50,000 people in the park. So everybody was frightened that whoever did the bombing would strike again with Richard Jewell. As things narrowed down to him, as you mentioned, Agent Don Johnson and others went up to Habersham County. They brought information that just happened to match exactly what the behavioral science group had been doing. There's, that's the Silence of the Lambs group up in Quantico. And neither had spoken to each other. So when there was a, a, a threading together of the same story, it became, yeah, it became a, uh, a story that stuck with the, with the Bureau. And more and more, the focus began shifting to Richard Jewell. You both write how it was odd to see the FBI director at the time, Louis Free, take such an active role in this investigation. But Free, I guess, eager to keep this moving, solve this case of the Olympic bombing because the FBI was trying to get past Ruby Ridge and Waco? Yeah, Louis Free was the director, and he'd also been an FBI agent before, an assistant U.S. attorney before, and a federal judge. So he took a very hands-on approach to this, and as the reader will see, that can be a good thing and a bad thing. He was probably more involved in this investigation, in fact, certainly more involved and hands-on in this investigation than any other that I had ever heard of in over a decade of prosecuting cases. Kevin, as far as uh, just uh, going back to Richard Jewell and, and, and his background before the bombing and then kind of what kind of grew suspicions for a lot of people as far as his background and, and people calling him the overzealous cop, a uh, eager cop, a wannabe cop, that type of thing, that certainly worked against him. Just talk about how the juxtaposition of him going across those two days' time on the Hero media tour and then this this whole FBI process against him is, is happening. It, it is. You know, Richard is a very complicated guy. He was set up or positioned in, in, in the media and in the public's mind as kind of this simpleton. But Richard had a lot of very good skills, especially when it came to policing. He was not a sophisticated guy in any way. Road duty was his favorite. He loved to 
check people for DUIs. He loved to uh, help stranded motorists, that kind of thing. That was his passion. But he also had this this um, kind of strange overzealous streak in which he would actually flaunt the behest of his bosses and go beyond what they were asking for. And so, for instance, at Piedmont College, he was specifically told, hey, go light. We're on a college campus. Don't go outside the college campus. You know, and he would pull people, people over outside of the college campus. And so he ran afoul of his bosses a few times, which certainly didn't help him. And he got this kind of personal profiled reputation as being a bubba. He was an overweight, twice-fired cop who lived with his mother. And in the public side, that made him a loser. And in the public side, that brought him closer to the idea that he could actually be the bomber. Kent, let me ask you, uh, 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 Kevin talked about uh, kind of profiling Kathy Scruggs and the AJC. Let me ask you about Don Johnson. He's involved in these FBI interviews with Jewel and, and the FBI's heavy-handed tactics and kind of what they did in interviewing Jewel, which really stood out, and and, and uh, there was reprimands later on for the FBI for this. Talk about just uh, his role. He For Don Johnson, I guess he was somebody who had a career at that point that had not gone, I guess, as he had hoped, and now here he is thrust into this huge, huge investigative circus here. Yeah, it was a wonderful uh, opportunity uh, for him. But what ended up happening is they needed to get Richard Jewell in to interview because the AJC story broke. Things were breaking on the side, as you said, with the with the FBI. Everything was converging at the same time. So it was just rush, 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 trying to get Jewell in to interview him. There was a, a behavioral science profile that said how to interview him, but that was essentially tossed out as far as any interview advice, because the timing was all off. Nobody was expecting this AJC news break and what came from other media afterwards. So there were two things that happened. One is he was told that there was a first responder video that was that I was going to make, so to come in and please do that. And I know a lot of the public thinks ruses like that are horrible, but they happened with the DEA and people posing as drug dealers or terrorists and people felt posing as fellow terrorists all the time. You just need to get somebody comfortable, and the FBI thought this really could be the bomber. So they bring him in, but beyond the ruse, uh, the decision was made midway to uh, give him his Miranda rights, and that didn't go well at all. And Miranda rights, when you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to counsel and the rest, are very sacred uh, constitutional rights, but that's not the way they were treated. And for better or worse, and actually I think better for justice, the entire episode was recorded. So there's no question of what, what went on in the room, and that factors heavily into the book. We're talking with Kent Alexander and also Kevin Salwin. The book is The Suspect and Olympic Bombing, uh, Richard Jewell and the Media's Role, the FBI. Kevin, just from your perspective, the media, once the story breaks in the AJC that Jewell's a suspect for 88 days, he is uh, the lead suspect. Give us a sense of the day-to-day as far as the media circus and frenzy around around uh, Jewel and, and how you all covered it as well. Well, start with the idea that there are more than 10,000 journalists in town. There's actually 15,000 journalists who've been credentialed for the Olympics. And so NBC has full-time round-the-clock coverage. Uh, CNN, of course, has, has already been a 24-hour network. And then at the same time, you have, you know, 96 is a fascinating year. Because you have MSNBC starts up on TV and online. Fox News Channel starts up that year. The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and a number of other newspapers going online for the first time, on the Internet for the first time. 
And so now all of a sudden you have this surge of need for new content and you have a surge of need to advance the story. It's very much like today's social media environment in which people retweet or Facebook share. And what was happening was that unfortunately most of the people who were covering this story didn't have original sources. And so they were just turning the dial, just flinging out information, oftentimes totally irresponsibly. I mean, they, you know, the New York Post called Richard Jewell failed staff village Rambo. They had a headline on the front page of the paper that said saint or savage. It's clear which side they came down on. Jay Leno called him the Unabubba on TV and compared him to... Um, to the guy who whacked Nancy Kerrigan at the Olympics. So all of this just kind of spun into this media frenzy. And for the jewels, Richard and, and unfortunately his foremother, Bobby, you know, are in their apartment just with the shades drawn, living in this cloisterous life, at least for the first few weeks until the case starts to go south for the FBI. Uh, Kent Alexander, as I mentioned, you're the yes. U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia at the time. It was you who wrote the letter that said Jewel eventually was no longer considered a target of the investigation. It was one paragraph. Was there an immense gravity in writing that, given everything that had transpired at that point? At the time, it seemed like the weight of the world. It was a tough situation. Everybody wanted something different out of the FBI and the investigation, what the decision was, but uh, it was a letter that just needed to be written, mainly because Richard Jewell and, and his mother, Bobby, were so in the news and had been put upon so much, and the assumption was that Richard Jewell was guilty in the public. So the gravity of the situation, the letter of the day, was simply trying to establish in as broad a way as possible that Richard Jewell was not the bomber, but at the same time, some people in law enforcement thought he may still be. So threading the needle on that letter was an interesting exercise, but it was a, a letter that happily the FBI agreed should be sent. Richard Jewell and his mother Bobby just deserved to be out of the limelight. Here now today, we've got social media, rampant social media, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. 24-7 uh, news cycle is even more so, of course, than it was back then. Do you have any sense of how a situation like that, the circumstances like that back then would play in today's media climate? I think it would play very much the same, which is which is the truly unfortunate thing. You know, 96 was the year in which uh, you could make an argument that that the public's demand for speed trumped the public's demand for accuracy. And I think what, what has happened today in today's social media environment is very much that. I got to know information now. And if it's from a reputable source, fine. If it's from an unreputable source, that's fine, too. But I'm gonna ha I, I want that information, and I want it right now. Very dangerous place for us to be as a society because it promotes disinformation. It, it promotes a lot of the kind of messaging that, that if people are paying attention, they'd backtrack on. But oftentimes people aren't paying attention. The first story becomes the story. Yeah, and to hook on to what Kevin said, I think in today's uh, social media age, the nightmare would have unfolded even more quickly for uh, Richard and Bobby Jewell because the, the news would be out faster. It would be to everybody, to everyone, uh, even more quickly. And the assumption that they were, were guilty, that Richard was guilty, could be even faster. But as Kevin said, it's exactly the same dynamic, but it may have gone from minutes to nanoseconds. A couple more quick minutes here with Kent Alexander and Kevin Sowen. Uh, Kevin, as you look at this in totality, what's the lesson that 
should be taken from the Jewel story and in the time since you're involved in this story back way back then to now, anything new that you've uh, learned or anything changed in your mind about how you process this saga? The most important lesson, and by the way, you know, we don't teach lessons in our book. We develop our book as a work of narrative nonfiction, and so it, it re- should read like a novel and feel like a novel, but every word of it is true, and that's the, the really fun part of it. We leave the conclusions in many ways to the reader, but I think it's difficult to come out of this book and not say, hey, speed is oftentimes not our friend. Speed is oftentimes a way that, that people make mistakes, that lives get ruined, that heroes turn into villains. And it's, it's really, in many ways, a cautionary tale. And uh, Kent, uh, kind of the same for you. I mean, I guess as far as how you process this many years later, anything from what your experience was back then to now, how you've maybe, if at all, changed how you look upon the saga? First and foremost, from a law enforcement standpoint, don't leak. Leaks of suspect's name can cause untold human damage at a very personal level, and that's one thing we hope to outline here. At the FBI, I can tell you people were angry among the supervisors, both in Washington and Atlanta, that this name leaked out, but it did. And that wasn't anybody's fault but law enforcement. So that's a lesson for law enforcement as far as the media and what we can learn for it and public reaction. As Kevin said, I think one thing we all need to do is slow down and wait for the facts and not draw conclusions immediately. Because a lot of times what looks to be the case is not. Well, I have to tell you both, reads like a thriller, honestly, and it's, it's, it's a really excellent book. The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle, Kent Alexander and Kevin Sowen, uh, co-authors on this, uh, Kent and uh, Kevin, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Edgar. Great to be with you today.